All right. Um, I was expecting a colleague of mine to also join me, but since he hasn't turned up, that gives me the freedom to do what I want, <laughs> which is to talk about empowerment, of course, but uh, more in terms of how we would actually practice it in a community. And so that's, that's the focus of what we'll be looking at this afternoon. And how many of you have flown Delta recently? They do a very cute thing. As soon as you get in and you've settled in and they say, this, is, this flight is going to Louisville, uh, the way you say it correctly, which is Louisville, <laughs> Louisville, whatever. That's the first, first training you get. If you're not going to Louisville, this is the time to get off the plane. <laughs> so if you're not here to understand empowering communities for health and development, then you're on the wrong group. Okay. Having established that, I'd like to tell you um, the outline of what I'm going to talk about today, which is to look at the role of empowerment in health and development. I'll share briefly, because that's then your summary, about the Emory study. We've done, uh, MAP International has done a research program with uh, Emory, the Rollins School of Global Health in Emory. And uh, in, in conjunction with that group, uh, whom we chose because we were looking at partnering with a secular organization, we were uh, looking at partnering with um, a premier organization, uh, which would do a lot of research and have their documents out uh, for the public to take a look at and they would be recognized uh, for the document. So we got Emory involved, and I'll share with you briefly about that Emory study, and then we will um, look at expanding and understanding those dimensions that came out of a, a survey that we did of around 58 or 59 organizations, and some of the findings that emerged from that uh, that helped us understand what were key and critical ingredients for the whole process of empowerment. And then I'm going to tell you a story, a story about a village and what happened to that village. And if some of you were in uh, Dr. Jose Miguel's presentation uh, yesterday and today, uh, you would you would have heard about uh, the 50-40-10, and I'm going to talk about what the 50-40-10 is and, and the whole issue of empowerment and the introduction of technology and addressing community needs. And then um, we will look at a definition of empowerment. Uh, I might be tempted to tell you earlier on, but I'm trying to hold back on giving you the uh, actual definition. Uh, when we did the Emory study, uh, the title was, I, can, I know it when I see it, but I can't define it. It was a quote from one of the senators, but of course he was unfortunately talking about pornography. And, uh, but empowerment is something that we know this is a group that's empowered. And in uh, my early days, we used to talk about women's empowerment. And we came up with a beautiful quote, Hell hath no fury. Have you heard that? Mm -hmm. Hell hath no fury, then women empowered. <laughs> and we had this beautiful example of uh, how, when we were talking about the problems in the village, we discovered that alcoholism was the major problem. And there were brewing centers you know, informal brewing centers all over the village. And the women suddenly were empowered. They discovered that this was the cause of all the problem. And so they decided to destroy all of it. So they went with, armed with bamboos and broke down every one of those mud pots in which alcohol was being brewed. And then the guy who, who led this whole operation, who was the chief sort of coordinator, uh, they got hold of him put him inside his house, locked him up. 
and said, you're not coming out. And of course, they didn't have any toilets inside the house. So there was no way he could come out. They said, you're not coming out till you promise in front of everyone that you're never going to do that again. So having got this thing started off, we didn't know what the end was. <laughs> so we coined that statement about hell hath no fury uh, as women empowered. So a definition later on about empowerment. The people at the back, can you hear me? Can you understand me also? I'm sorry, this is the only accent I have. <laughs> All right. Okay. And then we'll, if we have time, we'll also look at a quick Bible study of an in individual who Jesus empowered. He was the master empowerer. And then he, of course, he told his disciples because he was, he was talking so much about building up their capacity and empowering them that when in John 14 he talked about his going away, they were so worried. And then he had to tell them, I will, I will go away, but I will send you the comforter, the empowerer. That he, will, he will tell you and he will help you. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, this was part of what we came up with in the Emory study. Hopefully you can see it. If you can't, maybe there's places in front. You can just move up there. Um, what we did was we, we had a questionnaire that was sent out to about 58 or 59 organizations. And it was very interesting to see the response. The ones who talked the most about empowerment were the smaller organizations. <laughs> there's a correlation with how much funding you have and how dependent you are on community mobilization and, your, and the importance you give to empowerment. The very large, very rich organizations didn't even respond. <laughs> even after three reminders, they didn't respond. No response to, they, they thought it was, you know, and then was, oh, you sent us a questionnaire? Okay, we'll find out. Then we sent personal reminders, and they said, no, this, this is too complicated, too many questions. So they didn't do it. But it was interesting to see how the, the, the groups that worked at community mobilization talked the most about empowerment. The smaller organizations, the resource-deficient organizations talked more about community organizations. But... When we pooled all this information together, you know, we, we let ourselves go when we wrote out the questionnaire. Too many questions, a lot of information, plenty of place. You could keep expanding the scope of what you were writing. So there were people who wrote a whole page on sections of the questions. And then pooling it together was, was a challenge. But we, we had the benefit of having uh, two MPH students work on it. And they pulled the information together, they analyzed it, and the sum total of the analysis was that empowerment from an organizational empowerment process or a facilitation involves enabling empowerment through these four dimensions. And the four dimensions were in the area of health improvement, in the area of political and legal empowerment, in the area of economic empowerment, and in the area of natural resource empowerment. And of course, they left it with that. We were still looking at it. And one of the things that has happened with this study is as soon as we get to something that almost seems like a conclusion, it, it just expands itself further. And I'll tell you where the expansion has taken place. But we looked at this and, uh, you know, Mick and I would continuously interact with the Emory people, you know, these academicians. And uh, the first time we had a Muslim work on it. So it challenged everything she believed. And then she came out with, 
I, I thought she came a little closer to understanding the spiritual dimension, but she did not know how to talk about it because she was interpreting it from her perception. And by the time she got her MPH and then uh, we put another student on it, and she saw, yes, there is a spiritual dimension, but I don't know how to encapsulate it in a diagram. So we came up with a 3D version of this. Imagine this being flat, like the wings of a flying saucer, and then two cups on top. And one of them, the underlying, the, the supporting, the important circle below was the spiritual dimension. But it still left a question about what about the one on top? <laughs> and how does the spiritual make sense? The spiritual must make sense. You remember Walter Trubrish? The older people in this room would know who Walter Trubrish is. Okay, he's a missionary talked a lot about the family uh, in Africa. And he wrote a beautiful uh, a, a prelude, an introduction to a book by a person called Rebecca Manley Pippert. Or Becky Pippert wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker about being a witness. And he's, he put it this way. He said, it's critical and crucial. There is a turning point in your life when the natural becomes spiritual. But there is an equally critical and important stage when the spiritual becomes natural. And I thought it was beautifully put. So if you're talking about the spiritual as being important, then it must make sense even to the secular people who are involved in development. It should not only make sense to us. Of course it makes sense to us, but it must make sense to them. When it makes sense to them, they'll see it missing in their lives. And so we've expanded the scope of the study and told them continue with it. One of the things that we've discovered is the, the area of economic empowerment. We can't have all four circles the same size. Because somewhere when, that, when the four come together, where they overlap is what empowerment is about. But the, the economic is not the same size as all of them. Now that makes a lot of sense to an economist. Those involved with micro-enterprise and small enterprise development will be very happy to hear that. The bankers will be very happy to hear that. I worked as a macroeconomist for the Asian Development Bank, so I was very excited with that. But... If you look at the connection with spirituality, if there was one thing that Jesus talked the most about, what was it? Money. Okay? What, what were some of the things he said about money? It is the root of all evil. The love of money. Okay? The love of money. Thank you for correction. The love of money. Okay, so there's something about loving the economic side that is at risk. That's linked with spirituality. Evil is linked, right? It's the negative, it's the opposite. And there is something about, in, the, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the... Makes sense, right? Okay. And when you get a lot of money, what do you say? I have been? <laughs> and when you learn to let go of that and give it away, again you feel? Amen. There is a spirituality link there. So we're seeing this whole dimension that it's, it's, it's just getting us all excited. And the Emory people are getting a little worried, but they're not worried really, because we've got a contract with them to continue to explore that. <laughs> and we, we keep getting students to, to work on that. So uh, that's as far as I'll, I'll leave it, because uh, there's still work to be done. But just to bring you on board with what's happened till now, that's the background. I want to share with you a model that we have used. And I'll give you some examples, 
and talk with you a little bit more about the Total Health Village. Okay, the Total Health Village, uh, just as the title started getting popular, we discovered it, was, it wasn't a very appropriate term, but it, it sounds nice, Total Health Village. And we discovered also that Jeffrey Sachs got to that title before us, except he didn't call it Total Health Village, he called it the Millennium Village. And, of course, because he's a multimillionaire, he puts in half a million dollars into a village and expects it to develop. And it ends up with, you know, monuments of uh, failure as icons in these big villages uh, in different parts of Africa. So what we're looking at doing is, with the Total Health Village, to be a continuously examined, continuously uh, streamlined, uh, we call it relentless optimization to make it as cost-effective as possible. I'll share with you about that. That was just the teaser. Okay. So uh, if you were there in Dr. Jose Miguel, the guy in the blue there with the black beard, I don't know how he manages to keep his beard black, but... Uh, I really recommend, if, if you're looking to see a total health village and uh, the whole process of community development, integrated community development, that's the project you've got to go and visit in Bolivia. They work in a place called Chilimaca in Cochabamba. Uh, you've got to go there and see that. There's an amazing lot of things that you can see there. Okay, what is the, what is the vision and strategy of the program to support and empower communities to solve their own problems. Uh, we, there are certain salient features of this. It's cost-effective community development strategy that leads to total well-being. Uh, our target is U.S. dollars two per month per person to impact the whole village. Okay, that's our target. Uh, it's a way to impact a whole village, close to a 1,000, it's a completely participatory strategy where communities identify needs, analyze their situation, plan a response, and actively work with the, or we actively work, and they also actively work with the CORPS, the community's own resource persons. We try hard not to imagine that development started with our entry into the village. It was already there, happening, struggling on some counts, but we would go in there to make a difference. And we want to engage it actively in solving its own problems. As certain salient features, MAPS person there is a link and a catalyst. We try to create a community-to-community -community interaction, and I will share that also with you. It's a long-term association five years plus. It's a process of CPA, Continuous Progress Assessment, and the purpose is, like I mentioned earlier, relentless optimization. Cost, effectiveness, impact. And the investment in the project is like a seed funding. So there's a core investment, and uh, if we have a vertical intervention, it should integrate into the project. Once it's done, you still run it only on a core investment. Uh, we call it the 50-40-10 principle, and I'm going to tell you what that is through a story. How many of you have heard the story about the house on a hill? Anyone? Okay. Can you see that? It's probably not too bright. Can we have some lights off? Okay. Can you see that now? Okay. There was a, it was a village on top of a hill. And then there was a steep cliff. And then beyond that, there lived a community that was quite well off. And it had, uh, people were well off, they had nice concrete houses, 
and uh, they appeared to be very philanthropic because once in a while they'd get up on the roof and look with great pity towards this village which is on top of the hill. And uh, they seem to be looking at them. And of course, uh, the people on the, on the top of the cliff also reciprocated by looking back at them, uh, but with great longing. They seemed to be happy. They seemed to have vehicles. Uh, they had electricity. And um, it seemed very attractive. So they would go over to the edge of the hill and look down at them. And uh, it wasn't very easy to see, but they, they closed their eyes and they focused their eyes. They didn't have binoculars, but they looked at them. And uh, they really looked at they, they were They weren't looking back at what they had. They seemed to be looking at these people that were much better off than them. And they longed to be like them. They kept looking at them. And, uh, you know, so these people, they lived in nice houses every two years. They, they painted the, the walls. And uh, lots of more people seemed to be coming there. And they also seemed to care for them. So they looked back. And so these guys were quite interested in them. And they kept looking. And every now and then, somebody would go over the edge. <laughs> You're standing and looking from over the edge, you sometimes forget to look down. And uh, trying to take a closer look, some guys would fall. And while they fell, all you could hear was them screaming, Woo! And the next you heard of them was when they hit the ground. And, uh, you know, the seeing stars as they hit the ground. But, you know, on the other side, these guys were philanthropists. They cared for them when they were up on the hill. They cared even more when they were down on the ground. And so they would immediately send somebody, run there to help them, pick them up, and, you know, as fast as possible, run them and take them to the hospital. And in due course of time, they improved their strategies they introduced some technology. It was, uh, you know, indigenous technology, first with this thing and just a wheel, and then they actually put uh, ball bearings and stuff like that. And they could actually time it, you know, downtime. This guy hit the ground. They had somebody who would whistle. They had a whole system, a chain management system. Someone would blow the whistle. They had a 24-hour cycle to observe anyone falling, the blow whistle, someone would run immediately and uh, get those guys and get them back. And uh, in due course of time, they added even more technology. They even got this ambulance with the siren and, um, you know, this, this was just fantastic. The downtime was reduced to a very, very small amount of time. They had flashlights out to see when someone would fall and they would take them and, you know, improve technology and uh, even got a helicopter, in, you know, like one of those Blackhawks, go boom, 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 boom. And you had a lot of this sound and all this, uh, you know, exciting stuff happening down there. And uh, then they brought in some evaluators. You see the evaluator there? is collecting data as they go along in, you know, in the cycle of events. And uh, there's somebody who's overseeing his work from up in the helicopter to make sure that uh, you know, he's doing that well. And then they introduced total quality management <laughs> and continuous quality improvement, CQI, TQM, and with all of this stuff, they really got their act together. And, of course, they attracted donors. The first batch of donors came, gave them some funding. Then some more donors came. And then some, even some more donors came. And then they had this really fantastic system in operation. Lots of stuff happening. They even added number of houses to, to take care of all those, you know, the additional supplementary staff that needed to come and look after it. And there's, you don't see all the houses because there are a whole lot of them 
There are some duplex houses behind that, and that's where the project manager, deputy manager, directors, and all would stay. So they had a really good system going. And then there was this guy, an embarrassment, an utter embarrassment. He said, why don't we empower the people to build a fence at the edge of the cliff? And everyone was really angry. They wanted to stab that guy and knock him out, put out his eyes. What a thought. What are we going to do with all this infrastructure if you do that? Empower the people? Whoever thought of such a thing? Well, our friend didn't want to give up. So he found a way around all of this to go to the people and to sit with them and talk with them and get them to understand what their problems are analyze their problems, and because he was resource deficient, he depended on empowering the community, and he found an indigenous way to use bamboo and local hemp, and they built a fence. And that immediately reduced the number of people who were falling over. But as time went by, what he discovered... (laughs) was that some people were climbing on top of the fence and still looking because it still looked really impressive. It looked like on the other side, over there down below, they had it really good, you know, all this activity and, you know, lots of uh, stuff going on. If the lights went out, they had generators. And so they still looked and there were still some who fell over. Can you see that guy who's fallen over? You just barely see him. He's moving at greater speed. Okay. (laughs) So our friend, the empowerer, what he did was, then he said, what we need to do is first find out why people go over the edge. And they said, we go over the edge because we don't have what we need on this side in in our village. So he said, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's empower you and talk with you and talk about building a backup fence. Okay, so he built another backup fence, and this time he made it really high, so that even the industrious people couldn't climb over it. Okay, and should someone at at any stage be able to get across, they would have a second backup that would prevent them from falling over. And then, once that happened, they had lots of time to focus on their own village and start looking at developing it. And they started using what they had and they were empowered to use what they had and develop it to the maximum. Because this empowerer told them, and you'll hear uh, uh, Jose talk a lot about this, be the change you want to see. Begin it here. Start making that change right here. Let's start planting. Let's plant indigenous species of plants. We have, uh, you go looking for medicines over there. When you fall over and they treat you, they keep telling you you're stupid, you're an idiot, you're incapable, you're dependent on them. Why do you want to be like that? Why don't you build up your capacity? Why don't you develop to the fullness of what you can be? (coughs) So he started doing that, and they started developing. And in due course of time, the development behind the second fence was so great that there was really no need for anyone to go on the other side. And there was no one going there, so even trees were beginning to grow. They had this excellent line of defense. That is the 50% we are talking about which is this whole concept of community development, uh, food security, economic development, use of natural resources, the very same things that you saw there, Uh, whole systems where they take 
their own political decisions. They work on their environment and develop their environment. That's the 50%. So 50% of efforts need to start there. 40 needs to be the prevention. And those that go over the fence, 10%. Okay? Now, the world's resources are inadequate to treat everyone that gets sick. It, the principle is that you assume 3 or 4 5% of the people are going to get sick. Why are all the systems breaking down now? Because you've got an older population that has a series of chronic diseases. There's more demand on health care than ever was. But you go to the hospital and you will find, just like in this case, 90% of those who are there could have been prevented from coming. You go to any disease place, you go 70 to 80% of diseases occur related to gastrointestinal problems. I'm talking about developing countries. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about? And while we're at it, what's going to happen to all of this? Let's leave that alone. What do we do in a total health village? Let me just give you some of the basic principles that we follow, and then I'll, I'll uh, give you a few examples. The, the modus operandi, we can have the lights on. That way we can check on who all are sleeping. Okay. Our modus operandi is self-empowerment of communities and holistic integrated development. We enable communities that we work with to take ongoing comprehensive action to improve their own health and well-being. There are there are seven uh, important principles that we look at, or we call them critical criteria that are essential for a total health village. And first is that we work in definable communities. We focus on self-empowerment strategies. There's a very clear project life cycle. There's a, from the time we get in, we time ourselves for when we are leaving. And at this point of time, we say four or five years, but it, it could be much less. I see one village that I'm going to show you, which will probably be there for less than that, far less than that. Our approaches are holistic and focus on children to ensure future sustainability. The child is the future in the present. So when you begin to make your programs child-focused, not child-centered, but child-focused, you begin to be more futuristic in your planning. Uh, number five, we focus on partnerships. So we work with others who are there. Uh, we work with measurable, relevant results. And we try to make all our interventions cost-effective. If there is a cost in, involved, then we would try to leverage it through something. And I'll, I'll talk to you about uh, one such example later on. We, because we are a health-focused organization, we do some element of uh, pre-selection in the sense that we would look for an area with high disease incidence. Because then the intervention we go in with is relevant to us. It's something we can do. So, for example, the village I'm going to be talking about uh, was in eastern Kenya, in Kailolini district. Anyone here who's familiar with Kenya? You worked in Kenya? Okay, Kailolini. There's a place uh, called Kilonga. The village is Kilonga. It's part of a cluster of villages called Kibabuani and Moana Mwanga, which, which means 
foreigner leave from here. <laughs> so that's that's the that's the place. Our point of entry is uh, disease. It could be anything. In uh, in Jose's case, their point of entry is uh, the health promoter is the point of entry. And uh, they are selected by the community and nominated to come for training. They come for training. When the person is at training, if that person needs any help in their home for agriculture or others, the, the village is committed to helping them. They come for training, then they go back. At stage one, they work first to improve themselves. What you learn, practice. And then do it with your family. You and your family. Like Jesus said about you and your household. The promise of salvation is for you and your Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So we're, we're, it's a family within the, the person within the context of the family. And then they come back for the next level of training and then they go back again and then they go to work with two levels. Now there are a whole range of things that you can talk with Jose and he'll tell you about it. But you're looking at then two generations. One is the existing leaders which is the village leaders, and then influencing the next generation, which is the school. And then you come back for the next level of training, and then you go back, not only the village, but the surrounding, till ultimately you're dealing with the watershed, the entire watershed. Okay. So you have a point of entry. It's got to be a critical need of that community. So you go in there and start working. You address that need. Once you address that need, they become more open to listen to other needs that are related to that. So if you go in with a disease-specific in, in, intervention, they will then be open to health per se. And then once you've had that influence, then address more issues. Till finally, more, and finally, the whole village. <coughs> And that should be your four or five years process. Okay, are you with me till now? How do we progress from here? Let me drop a few slides and come to this. We use a technique called the holistic worldview analysis. We've been using this for some time in communities. Holistic worldview analysis. How many of you are familiar with that? Okay. The, the holistic worldview analysis, if you haven't uh, read about it, please write to us. Joanne has got a sheet of paper and she will... Uh, take down your names and your email address. And uh, if you want information, let us know. Uh, we will send you some information on how to do this worldview analysis. In developing this tool, we, what we did was developed it in such a way that the secular world could use it. So in, in uh, Southeast Asia, we used it in China at the village level, at the township level, what they call natural village, the um, administrative village, at the township level, at the state level, and at national level. So you, depending on your group, you can do an analysis for a whole country. We've done it for five countries. We've done it for China. We've done it for Vietnam. We've done it for Laos. We've done it for Cambodia. We did it for Thailand. We also did it for Myanmar, Burma, uh, with national level planners. But you could go down. If you're doing it for a village, you can do just the village itself. The village people come together around the small table, and you start uh, the analysis. Uh, we don't have time to go into how we do the analysis. But what is in the center is its capacity. What is in the outermost is the vulnerability. So what does this tell you about this village? This is 
from uh, Kibabwani village cluster in Kailolini district in Kenya, eastern Kenya. And we did this analysis with the village. This is not us doing it. Okay? It's very simple. We use simple techniques. We use the tensile technique, which is a very participatory method, and then we get the analysis. And what we, we found in this village was because it, we pre-selected it in an area where there was a lot of lymphatic filariasis, we really got more than we could bargain for. <laughs> the area was endemic for lymphatic filariasis. And of a form that we were not familiar with, because it wasn't just the swollen legs, uh, there were complications in some cases, which turned out to be a boon in the end, uh, the, there were excessive hydrocils. So fluid, lymphatic fluids were collecting in the scrotum, and it was as large as that, like a basketball. And so they could not work, and some of them had lived with it for 15 years. 15 years. Their wives had deserted them because they were suffering from impotentia coendi, uh, fortunately, not impotentia generendi, but their wives had deserted them. Nobody wanted to employ them. They had become the laughing stock of the area. And in this cluster of Kibabwani and the surrounding area, there were as many as 2,000 cases. 2,000 cases. And then we discovered along the coastline there may be 100,000 cases. So it was really far beyond any NGO to handle. Probably even bigger than the government of Kenya can handle. It's become a regional issue. Okay? So these people had gone off to the labor force, ended up becoming alcoholics, and were considered to be wasters and losers. And that's where things were. So they didn't even come forward when we were there. <laughs> they didn't even come forward and say, this is the condition and we want to be helped. So our, our country director in, in Kenya is a surgeon. When he joined us in MAP, he said, I must be allowed to go and operate and maintain my, my skill on weekends. And what does it say about God? He is no man's. I lost you guys. You're all gone to sleep. Hello? Hello? Are you awake? <laughs> he is no man's debtor. No good thing will I withhold from him who loves me and walks according to my purposes. Right here in the village, was an opportunity for our guy to practice his surgery. He examined the cases. He said, I can, I can cure it. And just as soon as he did that, the village witch doctor started a counter program. He said, this is a curse upon you and your family. The moment you try to do anything, you're, it's going, you'll die. And the curse will be transferred to somebody else. So the family didn't want it to be transferred to them. So there were, uh, you know, all sorts of confusion. Finally, we operated on the security guard, and he became all right. He was so excited. He was he was walking. He walked out as soon as the effects of the anesthesia wore out. He walked out of the operation theater, and he said, "I'm all right." And he mobilized a whole lot of people. And for the first round, we had 21 people for surgery. And Dr. Kavaludi told me, he's our surgeon, he said, you know, about 250 people were standing outside the surgery when I finished my operation. And when the patients started coming out after the operation, they were all clapping. But the village chief told me what the real story was. They were there to beat the daylights out of him. Because someone had said, you're going to see 21 dead bodies come outside. And then the changes started.
a week later, these guys were standing in line to get jobs. The wives returned to them. They stopped drinking. Empowerment. And then they became the first round of people who were going to talk to others about getting operations done. And today we are getting so many, we can't even handle them. The, the number of operations that need to be carried out. Okay? And then we discovered there's schistosomiasis. And there is soil-transmitted helminths. And we were looking at what should we do. And you know what happens? The biggest problem is when we try to do what the community is, can do. And the principle here is don't do what they can do. And the second principle is don't ask them to do what they cannot do. You know, it's easy for us to look at that and say, oh, and then you see the areas in which they have struggles are the very areas in which we have struggles. And we don't know what to do in those areas. And so we started our search. They had water. And this is what we were looking at. You know, we always think of an alternate high-tech response. How do we get that? Schistosomiasis, we treat them, they get reinfected. We deworm them, they get reinfected because it's the same water source. And we found this big lake that they had in the village called Kilonga, which supplied all the surrounding villages, about 5,000 people drinking water from that village. And it was infected. But there was enough water. But we were planning, how do we make a tube well, our own plans. So that's why in our relentless optimization for the project, we try to keep it as low cost as possible. So we started looking for, for solutions. The water was muddy, so biosand filter will not work. We looked at every other, you know, uh, Vanguard, this different companies. We looked at five. And then we thought, okay, this, this problem needs to be kept on hold. You know, I talked about networking in the beginning. There's an unwritten law by NGOs that where there's an NGO, no one else goes. Okay, you go into an area, and if you have a single point project, you have automatically done the greatest harm possible to the rest of the people. Because you say, I, I can only do this. If your problem is drinking water, I don't deal with drinking water. I only give medicines. It's your responsibility to see how you bring in the right people and network with them. Okay, I must be late. Everyone's ringing you guys up. Okay. All right. So we started searching. We're nearly given up. When someone found us, they came searching for us. And there were these two young people came to my office, and my, my colleague Beth went to open the you know, we let go some stuff, which means reception's not there. And so you ring a bell, and then someone has to come and get you and let you in. And she said, there are these two young guys like schoolboys who are here, and they're in uniform. They had khaki pants and black shirts on, like that lady there, with Sawyer written on it. And they came in. And they started talking. And they were, their eyes were lighting up as they were talking about water filters and about this high-tech filter that they had that has a 0.1 micron size so it can filter. And I'm thinking, Lord, did you send them? And then while I'm talking, I'm checking up on their website. And it doesn't say they're Christians. So I was just thinking, Lord, why don't you make young people Christians and send them to organizations like this. You know, this is the kind of people we want. And they showed us, they gave us this uh, filter and everything. And then someone had told them about us, so they came to us. And we wrote back. We sent them. And then the person who came was Landon, Landon Schnall. And then he wrote back and he said, in the service of the Lord. So I called him immediately. 
I said, praise the Lord. I, I was praying that you guys would be Christians. What a connection. What a connection. I knew then that God had sent. Okay? God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And He will send. He will provide. He will make a way. And He did. So these guys brought these filters. I said, how much do you trust your filter? They said, a lot. So I was a little hard on them. You know, I said, on your way back to Florida, can you stop by our facility in Brunswick? You just made this pond over there. It's a really dirty pond, I must warn you. And we're going to take out some water from that, filter it, and if you believe in your filter, drink that water and show us. <laughs> so Scott rang me up from there. He said, Ravi, they drank the water. <laughs> I said, now all I have to do is wait for a reply email to make sure that they're all right after that. And then I would trust this filter. So I took the filter. And then on my next trip to Uganda, we went there. I knew this was a problem. So anyway, we went there to this total health village. We're looking at other programs that they did. If you look at that, agriculture is a problem. Uh, you know, they... Uh, Mafiriko, which is uh, floods, which is not a problem right now because for the last two years they're having drought in Kenya. And then by Biashara, which is business. How many know Swahili? Okay. And Kilimo, which is agriculture. So we introduced new agriculture uh, crop in that area and used it. And they've just caught on. They're so excited. They have cashewnut there, but no way... To, to shell it. And I'm talking to one of the top doctors in Atlanta. He's a cardiologist, a guy called Nicholas Kronos, the top cardiologist. And he says, no problem. I know this doc doctor in um, Georgia Tech, and he's got about 100 chaps doing their PhD under him, and at least 30 of them are committed to take on any project that you can't solve. So they're going to help us with developing a low-cost, easy-to-operate, non-fuel-dependent shelling device for casual. I told you, God's work done in God's way never lacks God's supply. And then Kibaru, which is selling labor. Maji, which is lack of water for irrigation. And Maji 1, which is lack of safe drinking water. And Elimu which is poor education, Afia, which is poor health, and Ukame, which is drought, and, of course, Kipindupendu, which is cholera. And so we were looking at all of these, so many things link up with this. How do we solve this? Now, in our, in our analysis here, the way you empower a community is reduce their vulnerability in that area, and in the same area where you reduce the vulnerability, build the capacity. Okay? Let me see if I can get till there. It's like I'm getting a kidney dialysis or something. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so if you got a vulnerability on the outer circle, when you reduce that, it's in the same area you should build capacity inside. So the area where you have assisted them is the area in which you have built their strength and built their capacity. Okay, so let's let's begin to look at that uh, a DVD of how we did that. Hopefully, this will start. It worked perfectly when we did it before. Do we have someone who's technologically sound?
Okay, what you're going to see is this water which is sufficient for the whole village. They use some uh, roof water harvesting and that meets about 20% of their requirements. But when the water finishes, everyone goes to the pond. So everyone's affected by the contamination in the pond. And so what you're going to see is the kind of water they drink. And then we demonstrated to them the use of the, the water filter. And once you finish this, I'll tell you how we're going to give them the water filter. Uh, this Kara? Can we can we call somebody who's a technical person? Let this work. No. Yeah. yeah, I did that. That was working perfectly. Anyway, you can, uh, the, the, you can see the filters here. The filters are here. I could, uh, if, if, in case we are not able to see that, it's a beautiful video to watch, especially when, when a community feels empowered in the whole process. Finally, if we found we had to bring in technology, it's going to cost a lot of money. And so if we give it free, it, it's not valued. And if they have to pay for it, they can't pay that much. So we found a unique way for them to do it. Uh, there are 400 filters that are required in that area. And for each filter, what they're going to do, yeah, we're not able to get it started. For each filter, what they're going to do is raise a contribution of 25 labor days per family to a central labor pool of the village, which the villagers themselves will manage. And they will use that. So 400 uh, filters will generate 10,000 labor days. And they will then use that for deepening the, the pond, for planting trees, 
repairing infrastructure in the village and so on. Okay, while they while they get that started. While we wait, let's have questions. Who, who came up with the uh, value of the filters in by the We were. We looked at what the approximate cost was. So it will be around. No, it, it, it 40 bucks is here, but by the time it reaches there, it's going to cost a lot more. So if they put in about, you know, they worked out what their labor days are, and if they put in 25, it will be equivalent to what the value of it. Yes. So uh, we 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 worked on the figures with them. And uh, so what we now are doing is finding a school in Atlanta which is ready to to raise that. So it's a community of school that's linked with this. And then in due course of time, they'll connect with each other. And so there will be even opportunities to look at other things like education and so on. Okay. So we, we're still struggling with that. Any, any other questions?